Pierce Parks Associates Smart Tech Check podcast with Mark Vina. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, leader of the Parks Associates Smart Home Research Practice, and welcome to the Smart Tech Check podcast, where we cover all consumer tech topics. There are smart home, home automation, security, console gaming, and much, much more. Today's podcast is going to be a bit of a family affair. Uh, joining me on today's podcast is the entertainment research team at Parks Associates, uh, Paul Erickson and Liam Galgan, uh, uh, Galgan, I should say, research analyst at the par- uh, with the Parks team. Also on the roster today for today's podcast is Steve Nason, who is the director of the entertainment research group here at Parks. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Uh, glad you guys could join me today because the entertainment uh, part of our practice is a lot of fun. Not to say that, that not to say that the smart home uh, part is not fun, but this is very, very enjoy um, entertaining to me because, frankly, this is where everybody gets to laugh or smile and and try to understand, you know, where um, content is coming from, how people are utilizing it, how they're leveraging it, how they're accessing it, and uh, we've got a, um, a terrific team that does a ter- um, an excellent job of providing really interesting insights based on Parks data. And what I'm going to do going forward with my uh, podcast is I'm going to kick the meetings off with an interesting data point that I think will you know, inspire some conversation. And, and this one's an interesting data point because this, this data point um, is the, uh, covers and addresses the notion of OTT service stacking. I want to defer to, uh, to Steve to kind of provide some insight into that because it really, it really demonstrates some interesting trends going forward. So Steve, I'm going to turn it over to you for a couple seconds just to kind of kick the podcast off because this is a very interesting uh, data point uh, to chat about. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. So if really any trend encapsulates what's going on in the OTT space, and by the way, for those who are not familiar with the acronym, OTT stands for over the top. Uh, A lot of folks call it streaming services, uh, streaming video services, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Disney Plus, those, those types of services. What we're really finding out here is that uh, back in Q1 of 2021, while COVID was still on, but some of the consumption started to level up, people were still stacking at really increasingly rapid rates, services, service subscriptions on top of each other to where now nearly half of U.S. broadband households uh, subscribe to four or more services. It's pretty astounding. It's nearly double the rate of just... uh, just the year prior. So it's really interesting. It's a confluence of a lot of large services coming to the market over the last couple of years, Disney Plus, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Peacock. Um, And then also COVID, of course, where folks were homebound for long periods of time and they were consuming video uh, and needed, you know, many hours filled of entertainment. So they signed up and really haven't seen a shedding or leveling off of that. So this is just showing how popular OTT services are. So, Steve, would would this suggest that this whole notion of um, streaming services fatigue, right? You hear about that from time to time. Yeah, uh, that really hasn't happened, or or is the way that's being manifested is really churn. People are changing. Right. Yeah, their service switching in a lot of cases. They're keeping most of the foundational services, so like a Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Disney Plus of the world. But they're yeah, they're swapping out a lot of out of their different services, and they continue to add on more niche services. I know we'll kind of get in to talk about those once that covers specific content categories or specific target groups. Um, but yeah, it really has not slowed down. There is subscription fatigue. Folks have it all throughout their home and the different services that they subscribe to. But yeah, an OTT does not slow down as of yet. 
Very, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Paul and, and Liam, do you guys have any reaction to this uh, data point? Or uh, presumably you agree with it. I like the... Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, what's remarkable to me is when you look back in five years ago, you go back to 2016, and you look at where the data is today, that's a dramatic increase in the four more services. I mean, that really is uh, pretty dramatic. Wouldn't you agree with that, Paul? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, normally I, I would say that that's anomalous. Uh, but I think, you know, this last year of the pandemic, you know, even anomaly is normal, right? I mean, so we, we know how much time people have been forced to stay inside and, uh, and amuse themselves, right? And for, for better or worse, most of the time that's, you know, connected entertainment. And so I think uh, it's not inconceivable to begin with that people will try out, you know, all these different services. And plus, you know, we've seen uh, kind of as Steve alluded to all these different parties getting into having a streaming video service over the last year and a half to two years. Uh, not, you know, not even the, the last year. Uh, so you have a lot more options for consumers uh, where before they, they had to go to a single source, right? Their pay TV operator to get a lot of these things in one bundle. And now uh, with a lot of time inside, a lot of uh, uh, interest in consuming entertainment, and now with a lot of what used to be, you know, uh, different pieces of entertainment they would get from different places, ESPN, HBO, what have you. Uh, okay, now they want to watch it, except just to accomplish that, they have to subscribe to two, three services, you know, beyond this now standard, more or less standard Netflix subscription that so many households have. So uh, I was surprised by how much it went up, but I'm not surprised that it did go up. Mm hmm. And you know what's fascinating about this topic is that a lot of folks cut the cord to save money. And when you when you start you know signing up for three, four, or five services, which now many the data clearly shows that many people are, you can sometimes be spending more money for multiple subscriptions, you know, combined versus a cable subscription. But then you don't have the flexibility, and you may not have the access to all the content you want because a lot of these services are very niche oriented and. They, you know, like yeah. like anything else, they have very different personalities, and uh, I think that plays a role in that. Um, Liam, any of your thoughts on this before we go to the next, go to our first topic? Yeah, I think uh, what Paul and Steve said was completely on point. I think that we saw so many households adopting certain OTP subscriptions during the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, and we found that they're fairly satisfied with the service offerings that they were exposed to for the first time. So they decided to, to keep them. And uh, like Stephen Paul have said, there's been so many major players entering the market, like Discovery Plus had this, this massive uh, rise in prominence after it launched in January. And uh, I think we're seeing a lot more services aimed to become, become foundational. Um, you, uh, the services are aiming to be something like Netflix that, uh, is just um, a common subscription that most households have. So it'll, I think it'll be interesting to see which of these services end up actually becoming foundational and which ones uh, mm -hmm. do that same way. No, I, I like that word foundational because that implies stickiness, and these services like they like stickiness. They don't, they don't like churn. So, so with that, let's go to the first topic here that we have uh, teed up today. Uh, and uh, Paul, this is right in your wheelhouse, you know. And by the way, you know, uh, Paul, I've never asked you this question. Are you a gamer? Do you play? I mean, are you? Uh, 
I I am currently not a gamer, but it's for a very particular gaming related reason, which is why I used to be an obsessive. It's because I used to be an obsessive gamer. Uh, you know, probably well, that's well over. Thank goodness, it's well over a decade ago. Uh, but yeah, there was a good you know probably five year span where, uh, well, probably ten year span where I was into a lot of classic consoles, playing console games and. You know, then started discovering multiplayer, then got into PC gaming and all these different things. And, uh, uh, you know, I was one of those uh, individuals where it was hard not to do it. So I had to step away from it. Uh, and I've been good. You know, I haven't uh, fallen back into it in, uh, you know, a decade or so. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's an easy subject for me to talk about because I'm so used to being in it uh, deeply across multiple platforms, which is maybe a good segue uh, into the topic where, uh, you know, playing playing really high-quality games has been something that's normally been, uh, I would say there's been a, there's been a, a not segregation, that's the, not the right word, but there has been a bit of a, a bar there that's somewhat financially related, right? I mean, you either can afford a gaming PC or you can afford a four, four or $500 gaming console or you can't, right? Or you have to buy something two generations ago. Or what have you and so uh cloud gaming is such an interesting topic because it's uh it potentially democratizes high quality gaming or access to high quality gaming to a lot more devices in the consumer landscape mm -hmm. uh many of which are far more affordable than your gaming pc uh you know or your uh game console no i i think that point is spot on because gaming in many respects uh, was kind of the haves and have-nots if you go back a few years ago. If you, I mean, if you really, you know, people who are really serious gamers, folks are buying Dell XPS, Alienware, you know, dual SLI, water-cooled, you know, 5,000-class systems. You know, that, that that's a fairly niche market. You know, I mean, it's large, but it's not, you know, 50% of the gaming market. And I think the point you made that cloud gaming has the um, the potential becoming a very mainstream, you know, affordable, you know, the, the masses can access it. Now, the pushback that hardcore gamers will have is, well, you know, you really can't get the same class of experience which, when you don't have the, when you, when you don't have the graphic power locally, you know, on either an Xbox or a PlayStation 5 or, or a PC. So do you buy that argument or do you, th do you think that ultimately cloud gaming will, you know, rise the level of performance and quality uh, that you see in a conventional hardware platform? I think it's uh, true, but it's just like, uh, uh, it has to be put in context, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, water can be poisonous if you drink too much of it, right? Uh, so I think, yes, it's not going to perform as fast as if you had, uh, if you had it playing on local hardware. And mm -hmm. that's just, that's just a reality. You know, there's going to be some latency there, et cetera. But again, you have to put it in context. I mean, compared to the game that somebody's playing on their smartphone on a normal basis, or someone might be trying to play on their streaming media player, that gaming experience that you're getting is so far beyond what would normally be accessible to them that just that slight amount of latency is still okay. And again, it's that difference, uh, that lack of responsiveness, it may be super critical to the hardcore gamer or to the uh, the first-person shooter game, or somebody where, you know, like, seconds, milliseconds count. Uh, but the people that are playing other types of games, 
uh, or that maybe are not that hardcore, uh, especially if they're playing role-playing games or playing something else where split-second uh, differences don't aren't, aren't that crucial. Uh, you know, they're they're just happy to have a much richer experience. And on top of that, uh, you know, maybe they would rather feel a $15 a month bite than a $500 or $1,500, or sorry, $500 or $1,000 bite for a brand new PS5 uh, or game PC. Mm. Liam, you don't look like a gamer to me. I'm being sarcastic. You're, you're not a gamer. I, see, I would have guessed between you and Steve that you would be a gamer. Uh, no, I actually have never been a gamer, so... <laughs> Good for you, Liam. Don't get into it. <laughs> well, I think I think there's addiction issues, frankly. That, but I haven't played well. since uh, Atari since I was eight years old. Just showing my age a little bit. So. Oh wow! Oh wow! See, I I go, I go back just to date myself. I don't know if you folks remember Pong. Pong was the first. Oh, yeah. you, know, you know, it was the first. Well, it was sold by Sears, and it was licensed by Atari, of course. But um, that was unbelievable. I just remember going to the mall and just hanging out at the Sears Ro Sears and Roebuck. Um, uh, playing with that, and ask, and the manager trying to shoo us out of the out of the department because you know you can't stay here for seven hours. But uh, so Liam, you're not a gamer, Stephen. And, and what do you find interesting though about each of you? What do you find interesting about the the gaming category in general? I mean, is there something intriguing? Yeah, I can, I can jump in there. Yeah. I mean, some people kind of separate out gaming and video services as people think of video, but I just think of gaming as another type of video streaming. It's a content category. Yes, there's active folks, you know, there's people actually engaged in an activity. We've mm -hmm. had the explosion of things like esports, right? Actual competition, competitive gaming, where they have stadiums and arenas and live streams and huge sponsorships and professional players. Um, it's a content category. People tune in for that. Even non-gamers tune in to esports. And then there's also a natural crossover, right? You've heard some news recently. Netflix is starting to dip their toes in the gaming. <laughs> hiring a, a C-suite executive. We'll see what that turns out to be. Amazon, of course, has been in that space for a while, right? They own Twitch, which is one of the biggest video live streaming platforms, social network platforms for gamers. Um, it's just a natural fit. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that moving forward. Yeah, and, and Microsoft, they haven't unveiled their sure. plans, but they've kind of hinted that they're going to do something with not a console, but uh, outside of their Xbox stuff. Uh, they're going to do, do something with TVs to enable gaming yeah. Yeah. on a TV. And I don't know whether that's an embedded play or whether it's some type of, I, I don't know, external device that you plug into. But they clearly um, are looking at TVs as a interesting platform for gaming because I think they recognize at 600 bucks a pop, um, even a, uh, an Xbox is, is a, a considered purchase for um a fairly significant portion of the population. And uh, that to me is um, really interesting. And I'm, I'm very disappointed, Liam, that you, you're not a gamer because I, I wanted to challenge you at something, but if, if you're not a gamer, why should I, I even do that? So before we get to the next topic, Liam, any commentary that you have on the gaming category? Yeah, I would want to jump in on what uh, Steve had brought up, which was that Netflix was considering, or not considering, uh, getting into gaming pretty soon. And I think it's, it's very interesting seeing the... Uh, uh, cross-brand marketing that a lot of these companies have, obviously, as he mentioned, um, Amazon being involved in Twitch, Apple having Apple Arcade. I think we're going to see a lot more uh, co-sponsorships between um, the video side and the gaming side. I, I 
think it, it would be only natural for Netflix to start developing gaming properties based on their most popular video properties. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot more integration between those two markets. Mm. Interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. Let's uh, flip on to the next topic we need to hit. And uh, this is going to be very interesting, only because it's, it, in many ways it's pandemic related, but this is the whole notion of the windowing of theatrical releases. Now, honestly, you know, we're not officially out of the woods from a pandemic standpoint. Many of the studios are still releasing content both on, you know, live online and also in, in theaters as the theaters start to come back. But uh, Steve, was this your topic, if I'm not mistaken? It was, yeah. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about that because I'm sure you have an, an interesting opinion on this. Yeah, so it's really all about the notion of for many, many, many decades, all the way dating back as long as film has been around, there's always been a, a window that um, most, if not all, theatrical releases premiere actually in theater before they go off to digital sales, to physical media like DVDs, and then on to you know, online services. Well, as you kind, of, kind of teed up, you know, COVID has not really invented a lot of trends. There has been some, but they've accelerated a ton of trends. And one of them is, you know, before the pandemic, folks were not going to the theaters as much, except for really top shelf blockbusters. And a lot of people were going to the in-home entertainment experience to enjoy movies. A, because, you know, they're, you know, when Paul can speak to this, their home theater is coming out more affordable. They can afford that 70-inch TV and the wonderful sound system, the sound bar and the surround, surround sound and all that to try to replicate the in-theater. But also because video services starting, you know, Netflix, one that has eschewed the, the movie theaters a lot, the operators, by premiering their own titles on their service before theaters. And Amazon doing that as well, and, and others. Um, so they've kind of jumbled up that whole process. And then COVID hit. Then you have Trolls World Tour, which is a brand new release going straight to video on demand services and being a huge hit. And then, of course, with the shutdown uh, and movies being in the can, so to speak, that, that studio has had to weigh do we hold on to that release? Do we push it back a year like they did with F9 that just released? Do they uh, release it? Of course, they're not going to be in the theaters, the theaters are shuttered. So what do we do with it? So those that have direct-to-consumer services, studios that do, so we're talking about Warner Media or Warner Brothers, you know, with HBO Max under Warner Media, we're talking about Disney with Disney Plus, we're talking about, uh, well, now Paramount Pictures, you know, with Paramount Plus, they have options to just premiere those titles directly on those platforms. On the flip side of that, of course, you have the theater operators. Of course, you're not going to be thrilled with that arrangement. And then you have the Hollywood talent, which during the pandemic, Christopher Nolan, famous director, said, you know what, Warner Media, if you're going to premiere all your 2021 titles in HBO Max and in the theaters, I don't want to work with you guys anymore. Yeah. So he said, bye-bye. Uh, just recently, Scarlett Johansson, yeah. you know, yeah. Black yeah. Widow just came out. She apparently is considering or has already filed a suit against uh disney because you know i think 60 million or so of the revenue for that picture because it premiered on uh, premier premier access which is uh an add-on for disney plus subscribers it generated about 60 million or so for disney and she wants a piece of that pie and it's not in her contract because she's only yeah. tied to the box office right so great for consumers it's uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's great for studios because they're still losing a lot of money because of the box office being unstable, but they're at least getting money. The movie theater operators obviously are, can be hurt by it. I'm not going to feel sorry for huge 
Hollywood talent, but of course they're missing out as well on a lot of their revenue. So it's really interesting. It just keeps, it keeps evolving. There's different permutations of it. So it's pretty fascinating topic. It is a fascinating topic. Uh, and I just, there was a doc, a great documentary. I think it's on Netflix or Hulu, but it's on the making of the movie Jaws, like the behind the scenes. Mm. And quite a bit of time was spent on the Jaws really, which came out in 1975 for those of right. you who remember. Yes. That movie really changed. Well, it certainly um, made the, the 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 perception of sharks a lot different. But one of the big things it, it, it did was, you know, it was released on the July Fourth uh, weekend back in 1975, and they after they decided to, you know, mo a lot of movies back in the uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s would not open up to nationwide audiences. You know, it would open up in a region mm -hmm. of the country, and it would start to spread you know, the different regions. And they made a decision because the feedback they had on the um, the early screenings that it was going to be so popular that I th I want to say it debuted on four or 5,000 screens, which was an enormous wow. number back yeah. in 1975. And now you flash back to 2021 and many, many in-theater movies are always announced at, you know, three or four different very discreet dates during the year because, you you know, the movies are tied to promotional activities because yeah. they spend more money time, sometimes promoting the movie than they did to, actually producing it. Uh, but uh, it's very interesting this whole Scarlett Johansson thing because uh, I don't think she ever contemplated that that uh, a lot of the revenue would be um, generated when it got released online. And you know, I think uh, not to be a a lawyer because I am not a lawyer, but interesting. I can understand her her her. Sure. Hey, sure, why, not, why am I not getting a piece of this, Liam? Your thoughts on the topic? And, and, and tell me that you know the more. Don't date yourself. Tell me <laughs> You know the movie Jaws because if you don't know the movie Jaws, I'm ending the podcast right now. Oh yeah, that's that's definitely one of my favorites. I love anything Spielberg's done. Um, I think I think it'll be really interesting to see how studios kind of uh, position their slates going forward. I think HBO Max has been following this year. They've got a very uh, distinct strategy where they're going to have their major blockbuster films, the DC properties, and. Uh, stuff that'll generate a significant amount of revenue uh, go to theaters first. But a lot of these smaller titles that had a smaller chance at uh, generating significant box office are going to head straight to the streaming service. And I think we're seeing that that shortened theatrical window for a lot of these, these smaller films as well, um, because they don't have the expectations that um, something like Wonder Woman 1984 had to uh, really become one of the major money makers for Warner Media that year. Um, and it's 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 been interesting seeing the different approaches that um, these studios had, like um, Fast Night is already on transactional services, um, and uh, Paramount Plus is already, uh, the window for the theatrical releases was, was uh, sort of sh shortened from what it traditionally was. Generally, it's around 180 days after um, film screen at theaters that it heads to streaming and now already some of the titles from earlier this year, such as a quiet place part two are already on their Paramount plus service. So uh, it's, it's, it's been interesting to see because um, obviously these studios want to support their streaming arms, but they also want to be making the most off of the potentials for these, these films that they spent so much. Uh, the, the, the budgets are so high for, and that they had never intended to debut directly to streaming. I think now that studios have that in mind, they're going to be developing more projects directly for the streaming market. Mm -hmm. So it'll be really interesting to see how, how they position their slates going forward. 
Uh, Paul, your thoughts on the topic before we uh, flip to the next one. Paul, you're on mute. Sorry about that. It is uh, definitely Liam and Steve's more area of specialty, but I think uh, for myself, um, you know, the pandemic is an interesting change agent, right? So we think as we see what happens in other industries, uh, there's going to be a, a, a sussing out period where uh, during the pandemic and post pandemic, or at least, you know, whatever's passing for post pandemic now uh, that there's going to be some evaluation of from some you know very smart people on the financial side uh, of the revenue difference between the different streams and the different channels uh, through which it comes in and eventually they'll figure out some medium and you know at some point the contract law behind a lot of how that revenue is distributed to all the different you know members of the ecosystem will eventually follow it all seems to lag uh, but I think they'll, they'll work it out. Now, whether that's a six-month window or that's a 12- to 18-month window uh, by which, you know, everyone comes to terms and it's the accepted norm about how things are split between uh, in-theater and all the other, you know, out-of-theater revenue streams, uh, I, you know, I don't know how long that will take, but I, it, it will happen. There's just too much money involved for, uh, for people not to work it out. Right. Well, the, the only thing I'll say before we close this out, because I want to get to our last topic, is that the one community that really hasn't discovered um, these uh, streaming of live events or streaming of, of, of content, even pre-recorded content in the entertainment field is the Broadway theater. And the, the, the and it's interesting to me, and Steve, this is a chat we should have uh, offline, but what's interesting to me because I'm growing up in New York, the, 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 the professional theater has always been very concerned about um, recording their broadcast because they figured someone who goes and can watch a uh, recorded version of wicked is not going to pay 50 bucks or a hundred bucks to go see it in a live theater. And I think that conventional wisdom is, is wrong, honestly, because first of all, the, you know, the, the theater, uh, not many people can experience the theater unless you live in a big city across the country or you live near, um, or you live in the tri-state area near Broadway. And uh, to me, that's an interesting uh, opportunity uh, to kind of open up another uh, element of the performing arts to just a, a section of the population that just doesn't get a chance to see great entertainment. So that's going to, that's probably a, that's probably a podcast in itself. So let, let's flip on to the last topic in the few minutes we have left. <laughs> and Liam, this is your topic, the appeal of horror content and niche um, over the top video market services. This is interesting. I just saw a trailer the other day. I went to a movie theater and I saw the movie old, uh, is it older or old? A terrific movie, by the way. Um, and, but that's that's orthogonal to this discussion. But I saw a trailer. They're coming out with another sequel to Hollywood uh, to Halloween, which I cannot believe. I mean, how many sequels can you do about um, to Halloween? But that's a separate topic. So, Liam, let me let you address this one. Well, yeah, I think that you had started off the podcast today with uh, talking about the service stacking, and we're seeing service stacking for not just the main OTT services like Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, and Hulu, um, but we're also seeing a lot of uh, markets kind of um, continue uh, um, finding niche viewers. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've seen sports content. We've seen uh, British uh, content has really exploded within the last mm -hmm. few years. Um, but I was really interested in the rise of, of horror content because uh, we've seen that 
um, a lot of the major um, services like Netflix and Amazon Prime Video have increased their um, um, their options for horror content. But uh, a lot of these these niche services that are dedicated specifically to that um, have have really be um, become successful, particularly within the last year with a lot of originals and exclusives. Uh, right now, the uh, uh, the leader on that of that market is uh, the service Shutter from AMC, which is also mm -hmm. uh, in the AMC Plus bundle, and Shutter's just been getting a lot of uh, original exclusive films. They've recently uh, restored the classic film, The Amusement Park, which had never previously been uh, available for streaming or really available anywhere. Um, and so that sort of original uh, programming is something that generally you'd only see on one of these top line services. The fact that it's coming to a niche service and there's such a broad audience for uh, these uh, sort of markets. I think it's really interesting. And I think that we'll continue to see uh, services like that. Uh, if they, uh, if there is an, uh, if there's a, a appeal, um, I think they can be really successful. Uh, Steve, your thoughts on the, on the topic. Yeah. First I'll say the word niche gets a niche. You say it gets a, gets a bad rap because people think niche is small, but uh, ESPN plus has 15 million subscribers and it's a niche service because right. you know, it's, it's typically just the one content category or target group, but yeah, niche services, as Liam kind of said, they're, they kind of fill in the gaps in, in content. Um, some of the big guys, yeah, they've been trying to get into, you know, more, more reality or nonfiction or even horror or sports and trying to pull in some of those niches, right. Instead of being just all general entertainment, but there's these new services really risen to the top and, and become very important during the pandemic and continue to be. Liam mentions AMC. I mean, they have the AMC bundle. They have uh, All Black, which is African American content. It used to be called Urban uh, Movie Channel or UMC. You mentioned Shutter, the leading horror service. You have Sundance Now, which is kind of non-mainstream films. Um, indie films that go to that so all very ifc uh films unlimited and other service that they all have under their umbrella they're really filling in all these gaps and they're not really trying to compete with the big guys they're just for people that are wanting to get the specific type of content they really fill that and typically the prices are very very low much lower you know one two dollars three dollars a month um very affordable to add on to that stack if you're really into that particular content category well and my guess is and Steve, you probably would know the answer to this, is that the, these niche, niche services, and I think that you made a very, very good point. In, in, the, in the age of the internet, in the age of streaming, niche is not small. We're not talking right. about 100,000 users. We're talking yeah. about millions and millions of users. My guess is that the, demogra the demographics of someone who subscribes to a niche service are probably very, very strong. I mean, in sure. terms of advertising and, yeah, maybe, maybe it's a small, you know, on the scale of things, it's a smaller audience, but... They're highly attractive. Yeah, yes, from an advertising standpoint. No uh, doubt. No Paul, doubt. before we zero this one out, so to speak, any any thoughts that you have? And I, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite horror movie is because your your, your answer might scare me. But uh, any uh, any thoughts on this topic before we? It's uh, The Exorcist, by the way. That's the it's the only know? answer for the best horror. Movie. There's no horror movie on on a level. The the original Exorcist. <laughs> the original. Not, not the ten. Not the ten remakes. The original. Uh, right. Anyway. Exactly. Go ahead. So, I would yeah, no, no worries. Uh, probably for for you know horror or any other niche type of uh, OTT content uh, or niche type of OTT channel or service, uh, you know, uh, 
before OTT video over the internet was was a realistic possibility, you know, uh, you might have to hunt through the hundred or several hundred channel list from your satellite provider, your cable provider to find, you know, some particular specialty channel. Uh, and sometimes you would find them by accident. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, these days, uh, it, you know, the, probably, it's probably the best thing that could have happened for this genre. You know, specialty channels is, is the uh, mass adoption of OTT video just because it means that anybody that really gets that women where they want to watch it, they can access it, right? Or they can pay that uh, minimal fee per month to have access to to horror, to you know, dramas, to specialty ethnic content, whatever it is that they want, uh, you know, they, there's access to it, and I think that you know the appeal is always going to be there. Uh, you know, certainly won't be the same. I think uh, aggregate appeal as something like a Netflix or something like a Hulu, uh, but I, I certainly think that there's a healthy number of people that are interested in some of these very distinct niches. Well, this is a fascinating topic. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. So, um, Steve, Liam, and Paul, listen, thank you for taking the time to uh, participate on the Smart Tech Check podcast. And uh, to our viewing and listening audience, please subscribe to the Smart Tech Check podcast on YouTube and Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And until next time, have a great week.